So this morning, <clears throat> would you get out a Bible, please? Got my notes. And turn to the Gospel of John. Not the Gospel of John. What am I saying? What am I saying? Acts. We're doing Acts today. Yeah, surprise. I even surprised myself. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Yeah, we're taking a little break from, from the Gospel of John, but we're starting a five-week series today as we get ready to move into a new building. And I'm excited about that, but I also recognize that there's a great need for us as a church. This is always the case, but it's especially true as we get ready to start something new. There's, oh, there's new opportunities there's new possibilities there, but guess what? There's not. For the Church of Jesus Christ, there's not a new identity that comes with a building. There's not new purpose that comes with a building. And there's certainly not a new God that comes with a building. So who are we? Who are we, church, now? And who are we when we get there? And to answer that question, we need to answer a bigger question behind that. Whose are we? See, the Bible talks about the church, the people of God, as that. <laughs> the church, the people of God, has a whole bunch of names. It's called the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. We're called God's field. God's building, God's temple, the family of God. We're called the Israel of God. We're called the people of God. We're called citizens of the kingdom. As we saw in Psalm 100, we're called the sheep of his flock, the sheep of his pasture. And did you notice the common theme about all of those? I mean, there's a couple, but the big one. It's always an object related to someone. It's the bride of Christ. It's the body of Christ. It's God's temple. It's Jesus' church. It's Jesus' flock. We are part of Jesus' church. So the question that we're going to look at this week and in the coming weeks is this. How should we, as Jesus' church, because we are Jesus's, how should we live? How should we live as a church and individuals in that? What do we look like? Well, again, I said we're not given a new identity and a new purpose because God has already given us answers. And we're going to look at five of them this Sunday all the way, all the way through the first week of July. Now, we're in the, going to be in the book of Acts. Now, there's one thing that I want to hone in on with the book of Acts. And this is true for other passages of Scripture, but I want to make a distinction between what are called descriptive passages and prescriptive passages. Because the passage we're going to look at today, a lot of ink has been spilled. A lot of debate has been gone on. A lot of controversy has gone on as to what this means for the church today. Descriptive things in Scripture tell us that something is the case. Descriptus tell, tells us what something was like, not necessarily that it must be replicated. 
So, for instance, in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul got on ships for his missionary journey. Does that mean that we need to get on ships to do the work of the kingdom? <laughs> I'm using kind of a silly example, but you get my point. Prescriptive things in Scripture, however, tell us what we should follow. And it tells us the principle behind the description. Because as we're going to read in the passage today, the book of Acts isn't the only place in Scripture where it tells the people to repent. So Scripture's teaching is that, yes, repentance is prescriptive. It's a principle we should follow. So I want to I put those things before you so we can keep those in mind as we go, because there's a lot of opinions about what we're going to see here. And as we go through these five weeks and we focus on five things, I'm just going to make the caveat as well that these are not exhaustive. Okay? But I believe these represent through your prayers, through the discussions I've had with you, my prayers and observations of, from the scripture and from viewing life in this church, that these five things are those marks and actions which I believe will get each of us and all of us together where God wants us now and in the future. So we're going to look at the first of those today. So you ready? So let's stand together and let's read the, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 36. Acts chapter 2, verse 36. <clears throat> we begin with Peter preaching. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You can have a seat. That's amazing. Lots of good stuff in here. We can't possibly cover all of it. But there is one central wheel of the church, one central hub of the wheel in God's church, in Jesus' church. One thing from which all the spokes of, of what we do, who we are, come from. And that's what we're looking today. In order for us to understand whose we are, we must believe. To be part of Jesus' church, we must believe. So the question is, because there's a lot of voices out there telling us what we should believe, what must we believe, church? What must we believe? 
What does real believing look like? Well, this passage says, firstly, that real believing believes the gospel. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This church was started, the planning phase was before this, but this church started 30 years ago. York Evangelical Free Church. 30 years ago, was started and must continue to be and continually be refreshed as a gospel-centered church. To believe, we must believe the gospel. Real believing believes the gospel. So what is the gospel that's at the center? Well, this one verse, verse 36, we're going to hone in right now, says a few things. It says, one, that the gospel is good news that's certain. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. You know what gospel means? If you've grown up in church, hopefully you've heard this, but gospel means good news. Euangelion in Greek. Good news. And I think in our day, we need to be very careful with the word news, don't we? And we can be easily dissuaded by that because if you've been on media for half a second, you recognize that, oh, there's a whole bunch of things that people think are news that are not news at all. In fact, they should never have been there. But this is news, and it's time-tested news, and it's news that is to be known for certain. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Bible which proclaims it, guess what? These have stood the test of time. These have stood the rigorous test of even the most vicious of its critics. This is good news that is certain, and because it is certain, it can be known and believed. And what is the content of that certain news? It is the gospel is good news that Jesus is King and Savior. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus. What's the news? The news is that God is on the throne and that God has thrown wide the gates of salvation for you and me to come in, for our neighbors, even our enemies to come in. And his name is Jesus. And he is Christ, for he has finished all the work that the promised Savior was to do. He was to fulfill all the requirements of the law which we or nobody else in the history of the world could keep he was to die a sacrificial death in our place? Check. He was to rise again to newness of life? Check. To make a way back to God when there was no previous way. And he is Lord, as Philippians 2 verse 9 through 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is rightfully king over the whole universe. This is good news that Jesus is king and savior. The question is, is he your king and savior? Because the gospel also contains another little nugget here. The gospel is good news that we are neither. We are neither king nor savior. 
Because we should ask, and everybody should ask, why did they crucify Jesus? When God comes to save, when God comes to show his love, why in the world would someone kill someone wanting to do that? Well, God comes to save us from something, right? Sin. Sin among many things. Sin among many things is the belief that you are king or queen of the world, at least your own little pocket of it, and that you should get the worship that is due to God alone. And not only that, because you perceive yourself that way, you are also the Savior, your own Savior, that you get to set the terms of how you should live and achieve your salvation. And that's called sin. And when the real king shows up, the real savior shows up and exposes all of that for what it is, a sad, sad sham of a wicked and spiritually dead people, an enslaved people. When he shows it for what it is, exposes it with the truth of ourselves, guess what? We would do the exact same thing that the Jews and the Romans did in the first century. Put that judgmental, who tried to steal my throne, jerk to death. How dare he tell me that I'm not God? How dare he tell me that there's a better way, that I have a different identity than I want to appropriate for myself? Let's put him on a cross. That's where he belongs. And that's good news for us to hear. <laughs> and you're like, what? Well, the reality is that the gospel never shies away from the truth. Lies never, ever, 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 ever save. But Jesus can and did. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he died and rose again and now reigns as Lord and Savior for all who believe. Do we hear this gospel, church? Faith comes through hearing the word of God, says God. Do we believe the gospel, church? Do we teach and preach the gospel so that people would really believe, would have a real message to sink their teeth into? Real believing believes the gospel, the gospel. To be a part of Jesus' church, we must believe. Well, what should we do with that believing? What should we do with that gospel? What should we do with that news? What else does real believing look like? Secondly, real believing responds to the gospel. See, Peter doesn't just tell them this news just so they can say, uh-huh, and then move on with life. No. This gospel demands a response. You cannot sit on the fence with God about his gospel. What's the proper response to the gospel? There's a few things. One, we receive conviction. Look at this in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What does cut to the heart mean? 
You know the game of chess? What's the goal of the game of chess? It's to pin the king in a corner where he can't move anymore. It's called checkmate. They were cut to the heart is the spiritual checkmate. There is nowhere for them to run, and that's good. They see reality for what it is. They see that God really has made him Lord and Christ. The gospel, as Romans says, is the power of God for salvation. And when God's power shows up, and the Holy Spirit works on us through the hearing of the, of God, of the gospel, we are to believe it. And we are convicted by it. We see the truth for what it is that Jesus Christ really is Lord and Savior. And we just talked about in the Gospel of John previously that he, the Holy Spirit, will what? Convict the world concerning sin. What's happening here? He's convicting the world concerning sin, just like he said he was going to do. And when we are in this spot, this spiritual checkmate, we must respond. So they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Secondly, they answer that question. We are not only convicted as part of our response, we repent. Verse 38, And Peter said to them, Repent. It's a, church, it's a word the church should love, but so many in the church hate. So what is repentance? Interestingly, repentance is not necessarily doing anything. It's the other side of the coin of believing. Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor and theologian, writes in his short and helpful little book, I would commend it to you here, really short, so if you don't like reading a whole lot, which uh, I hope to change in that in you, you can read this. This is really good. called The Grace of Repentance. He says that repentance denotes a man's turning away from rebellion against God and turning to God. It means a complete about turn. And this happens first internally. Nobody on the outside necessarily sees repentance initially. Because we turn, we repent, we profoundly, it's a change of mind. It's from believing that sin and our sinfulness is where we are satisfied and meant to be. It turns to believing that, no, that's false. That God is really our hope, our Savior, the rightful King, and that He's where we are supposed to be satisfied and, where he, and he is where we are meant to be with. And it's after repentance occurs. These are happening really close together. It's after repentance occurs, then the proper response of the gospel goes outward. Thirdly, we make our faith public. He says, repent, in verse 38, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Faith is personal. And I get this from a variety of places, so I may be quoting somebody and I don't even know it. Faith is personal, but it is never to be private. And don't let the culture tell you that either. Our internal response to the gospel shows itself in outward action. 
See, the church, and even in the Evangelical Free Church of America, we affirm two ordinances as visible and tangible expressions of the gospel. One here is baptism, seen here in verse 38 and verse 41, where he says, those who received his word, welcomed it, were baptized. And then also, we, the ordinance we're going to practice and celebrate in just a little bit, communion. Which, is also, which was part, for the Jews of that day, part of a larger meal, which we see in verse 42, where it says, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. So we celebrate the baptism of believers. We encourage, as an act of outward obedience, baptism does not save you, but it is the expression that you have been saved. We celebrate the baptism of believers who respond in obedient faith to Scripture's command. We make our faith public. Real believing responds to the gospel. We as a church believe the gospel. And we respond to the gospel as Scripture indicates. I don't know if you've read your membership covenant recently. But the first thing we have covenanted with this church on that membership covenant is this, says, quote, I am a Christian who has been saved from my sins by the grace of Jesus Christ. I understand that baptism is a step of obedience to Scripture that showcases identification with the body of Christ. We as a church believe responding to the gospel. But it's not over there. God has so much good for us. Because what do we receive in this repenting and being baptized? Thirdly, real believing receives the benefits of the gospel. Because he goes on in verse 38, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on. So, what are the benefits of the gospel? Salvation, yes. But here Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. You know what that means? That means you get a clean slate with God. When you believe him, your sin is taken away. Your guilt, rightful guilt over your sin is taken away. Your shame over whatever you've done or not done that God has said you should or should not do is taken away. It's not brought up in God's court anymore because Jesus died once for all. I want to ask, and see if you can imagine this. Do you realize that the world, the unbelieving world, has no conception of that unbearable burden being lifted from their shoulders? Think back to when you were saved, when you first encountered Jesus Christ. Pilgrim's Progress talks about this pilgrim named Christian 
trying to go along this road that he knows he's supposed to go on, and his burden on his back gets heavier and heavier and heavier, and soon it just almost overwhelms him until he gets to the cross. And once he gets to the cross in the story, the burden falls off his back. You get a clean slate with God when you believe him. So here's the gentle question. Do you, Christian, do you enjoy this benefit? Do you live like you are forgiven? See, the person who is forgiven is no longer enslaved by their sins. We don't have to go back to our sins. We don't have to. We're free. The person who is forgiven by God is freed to love others the way God has loved them. Are you enjoying that? We don't stop calling sin, sin. In fact, people who know, deeply know their forgiveness also recognize the horrors from, of what they've been saved from. But we do say that sin does not need to be what defines our relationship with God and what defines our relationship with one another. No longer has to be the case. And do you enjoy being forgiven knowing that if you confess, present, active, today, if you confess your sins that you have committed as a Christian, that as 1 John 1 verse 9 says, he is now faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's not like Jesus forgave you then, but everything else, uh-uh, no. This, Jesus died for you knowing that you were still in the future. Jesus died knowing that your whole life, everything that you would do, whether good or bad, was future from his cross. That means he saved you knowing that you would still sin. And he saved you knowing that he was willing to forgive you every single one, every single day, no matter how bad it got. Just ask him. Enjoy his forgiveness. You get a clean slate with God as a benefit. And secondly, you get God himself. Because he says in verse 38 again, Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Forgiveness, amazing, but even better, God himself dwelling in you, abiding in you to make you holy, to make you look like Jesus. So that you don't keep running back to your sin. Christianity is not just a, I sign the card and I'm good. Christianity is continual. God has a process for your life. He is in the business of redemption. He is in the business of growth. Scripture calls us new creations in Christ Jesus. Well, guess what? If you've ever had a baby, they don't start off with all the faculties that an adult has. If they did, it would scare us to death. What happens? They grow up. We teach them. We encourage them. 
We discipline them. We love them so that they will grow up and mature. Guess what? God, that's by God's design because he wants to show us what he's like and who, what he, how he's working. And he does that by giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is himself the gift. He confirms over and over and over that you are Christ's. You get God himself. And not only God himself. You get forgiveness of sins. You get God himself. You also get a new identity and community. Because look what he says in verse 39. For the promise, this pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the promise prophesied in in the in the prophet Joel and Ezekiel and Isaiah, this promise of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon people is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone for whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. What are they added to? They're added to the church. A new Holy Spirit-filled community. We are blessed in this town to call ourselves, to be part of the community of York, the community of the surrounding area. But that's not fundamentally our primary identity. I'll even say this. We are not fundamentally and primarily Americans. If we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are fundamentally and primarily believers in Jesus Christ, part of his church. We are given a new identity. of people filled by the Holy Spirit, people forgiven of their sins. Brothers and sisters in God's household. And we'll unpack more of that in the coming weeks. And with that new identity means that our old identity goes away. Because what he says, he says, save yourselves from what? This crooked generation. Now, the generation back then was all about the Mosaic Law and adding to the Mosaic Law. That's how you demonstrated if you were worthy, if you were an upstanding citizen. Our day, do you know what it is? There's a whole bunch of things. The crooked generation of today demands that you be PC with Jesus Christ. The crooked generation of today demands that you affirm someone's sinful lifestyle. The crooked generation of today demands that you not love someone in the name of Jesus Christ, which is a different love than the world that loves its own. The crooked generation of today demands that you identify with sexual orientation, with gender, with race, with political party, first. 
and in many cases, foremost. So Peter says, save yourselves from that. We are a new community. Not new in the sense of we've been around for well over 2,000, 4,000, 5,000 years, God's people have existed. But we are given a new identity and community as a benefit of Jesus' saving us. Because the crooked community is identified by their sin. We are no longer identified by our sinfulness. And we don't need to identify each other by our sinfulness anymore. Real believing receives the benefits of the gospel. And to be part of Jesus' church, we must believe. Now, I've got to tell you, there was so much here that we don't have time today to go through verses 42 through 47. I will show you the slide that real believing lives the gospel. And there are four quick things that I will say, and I want you to look at this passage. But we're going to unpack verses 42 through 47 especially, but more of this throughout the coming weeks. So I feel okay kind of leaving you there. Life with real believing lives the gospel. And life lived in the gospel looks like four things. And I'm going to say them in in different ways as we go along. One, it's a life of learning. They devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and the prayers. Two, it's a life of relationships. And all who believed were together, and day by day attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes. Three, it's a life of love. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Four, it's a life of worship. Praising God. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Real believing lives the gospel. Because when you've been given a new identity, a new life flows from that by the Holy Spirit. I'm excited that we are going this direction as a church. But the first hub, the hub of the wheel that we must always tie back to is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because without the good news, we, why are we here? This is not, the church is not to be the thing that we check our social checkbox talking this this morning about, I can't remember who brought it up, but I think it was Glenn. A woman put in the oven a turkey, but she cut the legs off. And her daughter asked her, Mom, why do you do that? And the mother replied, well, that's what my mother has always done. And so... Now they're curious. So they go to the grandmother and they and they ask the grandmother, Grandma, why do you why do you, why do you cut why did you cut the legs off of the of the turkey when you put it in the oven? 
And she said, well, well that's what my mother always did. Well, thankfully, the, grand, the great-grandmother was, able, was still alive, so they go visit the great-grandmother. And they ask her, great-grandmother, why did you cut off the legs of the turkey? Because they thought it was something huge and important, really a, a key thing. And she said to them, well, it was because my pan was too small, and I had to make the thing fit. That's not what the church is supposed to be. We are not supposed to be here just because we've always done it. We're not supposed to be doing the things in the church just because we've always done it. We need to know why. And it all is supposed to tie back to the gospel, which is way more important than making the turkey fit in the, in the pan. So let us be a gospel-centered church. To be part of Jesus' church, we must believe. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who gives us good news. Good news that tells us the truth. Good news that loves us. Good news that lovingly exposes our need. And Lord, we thank you. I mean, there's so many things we can thank you for, but I want to thank you because, I want to thank you especially because because of the gospel, we don't have to try to keep trying to control our lives. We don't have to keep trying to determine for ourselves, apart from you, what is right and what is wrong. And we don't have to navigate this life alone. Thank you for your gospel. And thank you, Lord, for the ability that you have given us to believe it and to receive it and to respond to it and to enjoy the benefits of it and to live it. Help us this week to live it and enjoy being a forgiven people, a Holy Spirit-filled people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.